LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. Hundreds. Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over a hundred years ago. Hey everybody, it's Steve, the Rogue Scholar. And we're going to talk about something I think that many people don't understand, right? We talk about currency issuers. We talk about currency users. We talk about the role of banks. We talk about the role of individual credit. We talk about the international monetary system and finance between countries and balance of payments. We talk about sectoral balances. We talk about a lot of things that are not stuff that rolls off the tongue for average people. And it is very confusing at times. It's very simple, actually, in some ways, and it's very complicated in others. But what we're going to talk about is a very, very um, skinnied down, incomplete, imperfect um, discussion about, in essence, the hierarchy of money or federation of money, as I'm calling it. So if you understand federal or federated or federation, you understand that there's like a central control. And then there is like a, a decentralized aspect to it. Like in the United States, we have the federal government and then we have the states. The federal government maintains an incredible amount of centralized control. The states, and we have it in our United States Constitution, have constitutional rights at the 10th Amendment that talk about what amounts to be states' rights. And we know states' rights are oftentimes code for you know, Jim Crow and code for the Civil War and code for the South will rise again and on and on and on, right? There's a lot of things there, but but getting rid of all that political space for just a second, I want to talk to you about the functional difference between federal government, state governments, your local and municipal governments, the banks that you bank at, and overall credit money. And we might even dive a little bit into the inner bank, the dollars that float around we call reserves or high-powered money within the banking system. I think it's very important to understand the very, very foundational concept of currency issuer versus currency user, okay? In, in this federated plan, in this, in this understanding of the way uh, state theory of money, um, which was uh, a, a novel understanding of, of the way states create currency as a matter of law. They set up markets to provision themselves so that they are able to be able to build a standing army, as I've said many times, or build roadways or other public services uh, within their uh, geographical or you know logical uh, footprint. And then you've got the states, right? The states, since they don't actually create currency, they're left to use the currency. You got to ask yourself, how does a state get a hold of currency? Right? Federal government, we know, creates currency. But how does money get out of the federal government, right? How does, how does a federal government spend money into existence? And then we look at the local and municipal governments and school systems and all that stuff. And we ask, where do they get money from? Right? And how does it make it to them? How do they even plan a budget? How do they get through any of that stuff? It's all really important stuff. And it's stuff 
that normally if I was ramped up and amped up and trying to do a, you know, a real fisticuff style live stream, you might get excited about the anecdotes and some of the more fun, me being goofy, loud, you know, ranting, but you might miss the nuance, the importance of the differentiation between these entities. Okay. So I'm going to make a couple statements. They're factually true. They're just statements, right? There are currency issuers, there are currency users. In the United States, the federal government is the currency issuer. Doesn't matter whether it goes down the street to Billy Bob Thornton's house and says, Billy Bob, here is a computer. We want you to create U.S. dollars for us with this computer, and we want you to make U.S. dollars available to us when we ask for them. When we write a bill into law and it says a certain amount of money, Billy Bob Thornton, we want you to keystroke those in. Or we might go up to Boston and say, Boston Red Sox, we are giving you the power to create U.S. dollars. You are now our central bank. Boston Red Sox create U.S. dollars, and they break out their keyboard, and they start creating dollars based on laws and bills and things like that, okay? That's at the federal level. Federal level, the government is the master of the dollar. It creates it, and it may go ahead and say, hey, you guys handle this. We, we, we're, we don't want to do this. We, we're going to make you, we're going to create you to do this for us. And so in 1913, the federal government created the Federal Reserve System. There's a lot of nonsense out there that distracts from this truth. Now, Woodrow Wilson and the creature from Jekyll Isle and the Rothschilds and all these other nonsensical things that are part of the historical record. And, part, you know, the devil's in the details. Part of it is, you know, historical truth. And part of it is a bunch of conjectures made by a bunch of crazy people that are hellbent on bringing anti-Semitism into the equation. So we're going to put that nonsense off to the side as well. We want to live in the fact-based stuff. Okay, facts are that there has been a power play between banks in general and governments around the world for as long as banks have been in existence. Okay, and banks naturally want to be free to do whatever they want to do, and governments want to be free to do what they want to do, but they also want to control, they want to have control over what goes on. So the federal government, because there were so many problems back in the day, wanted to create a central clearing system, payment system. And what they did was they created a central bank. The central bank handles interbanking relationships. In other words, I bank at Joe's bank, you bank at Bill's bank. To make these guys talk together, there had to be a common language because beforehand, it might be Joey bucks are worth 20 cents and Billy bucks are worth 40 cents. It was almost like foreign exchange in the whole United States. Okay. So they standardized that system back in 1913, okay? That was what the Federal Reserve System did. All the other stuff aside, I swear, I don't even want to talk about it. It makes me crazy to have to hear this shit over and over again. The fact is, really bad people exist. There's lots of rich people that have goals and ambitions. There's rich entities or stakeholders that want to do all kinds of stuff. Since the history of time, this has been true, and it is a part of our bigger struggle that we have to deal with. And that's not just about banking. That's about power elites in general. And that is about the unequal distribution of wealth and so forth. So all that's very true stuff that we got to talk about, but it's not part of this discussion. So I hope you'll be able to carve away some of the conspiracy and just focus on this. Anyway, with that in mind, I want to be crystal clear. When the federal government 
writes a bill, meaning Congress goes through its process, goes over to the shitty Senate that's not Democratic at all. Another story we can talk about at another time. They debate, they come up with a, a bill, they pass it into law, the president signs it off. And if there's money attached to this bill, if it's not just a regulation, but there's actual monies that have to be spent, those monies are written into the bill and the Federal Reserve is told, please check the Treasury's general account, deposit whatever amount the bill says into there. Where did that deposit money come from? Didn't come from anywhere other than law. Law made that. And it's right here on a keyboard, law, keyboard. That's it. Very simple stuff. But only the federal government has the right to do that. Only the federal government has the legal authority to do that. Okay. So a very centralized system, the central bank, goes ahead, puts that money into the treasury's account. It spends that money into existence. This is a big deal because this is like the wellspring from which dollars flow. They don't print them. It's like they don't say, hey, we need $12 billion. Can you go print it, Johnny? Johnny goes, sure, boss. You'll go preach you some money. And they run off to the printing press and they just start cranking them out. That's not how it works. Every single spending bill spends that new money into existence. Every one of them. And so if you can get this part, if you can get this part, you're way down the runway. You've got a lot of knowledge now, okay? A lot of knowledge now, just that alone. Now, we talked about the states. How do the states get money? Well, the states are kind of hell-bent. They're caught because they're a currency user, like you and I are currency users. So since we can't create the U.S. dollar or the British pound or the uh, the yen or the yuan or the Australian dollar, or the Canadian dollar, or any, we can't create that out of thin air, right? So because we can't create that, we have to do something, which is the purpose of the tax. The federal tax drives the need for that money, okay? And so people do things. It creates buyers and sellers of goods. That's what sets up markets right there. Just that one fact alone, the fact that the government, the federal government imposes a tax payable only in its currency. Do you all understand? I'm looking at the chat right now, folks. If any of you all have any questions up to this point, go ahead and feel free to ask it away. But I want to go ahead and make sure we got this down. The federal government spends money into existence. They don't just print money. There's nothing like that. It, they, don't, they don't just create $10 billion for nothing. They wrote a bill. They said, this is what we're going to buy with that. That money is then created into the Treasury's account. The Treasury then types up a, a, a digitized check or makes deposits in whoever's bank's bank accounts. And those deposits are, are put into the appropriate bank accounts, right? That's how money is created by, by digital keystroke, right? And so how do the states get a hold of that money? Well, the states have to tax too. They have to tax. And those tax proceeds that they tax have to be kept and invested and stored and, and put into extremely important places to be able to keep them afloat. They've got to have money set aside in bonds that are safe. They got to have uh, bank accounts for themselves. They got to have lines of credit. In fact, many states even go into business themselves and public private partnerships to earn money 
to actually earn money, not to tax it, but to earn it. Okay. So states are kind of like businesses in a roundabout way, but they have a government flavor to them, but they're a step below the federal government. I mean, some of this stuff seems like it's like, ah, uh, yeah, sure. I get it moment, but I don't think people realize that it's not just one giant system. It's a bunch of subsystems stacked on top of each other. It's a hierarchy. Okay. So the money starts at the federal government, and they, that's why you see all these Congress people fighting with each other about, I need money coming in here. I need money coming in there. I need that base in my backyard. I need that bridge built. I need that road built. I need that business here. I need this there. That's why the states fight for that stuff, compete with that stuff, okay? And so states, as a, as a whole, can go broke, just like you and I can go broke. States and local business, uh, local municipalities have to earn a check, so to speak. They have to earn money. They have to bring money in. And states do that through public services and public works being taxed. They do that for a host of things. Like I said, they invest. They, states invest money because they do not create it out of thin air. They have to actually do investments. And so if you look, states also have to produce what they call a comprehensive annual financial report, a CAFR report. That CAFR report is submitted to Congress annually every year to talk about their fiscal position, the state's balance of, of cash, their ability to survive a rainy day fund, their ability to provide for their pensioners, et cetera. States can be disciplined, if you will, by market forces. The federal government, however, has the ability to set the rules, parameters, regulations, and everything that governs the dollar, that governs those types of things. So the federal government, when we start out, it's very, very important because this goes to the price level and this goes to understanding inflation within this space. When the federal government spends money, let's say they buy a unit of labor and let's say that unit of labor, hypothetically, is for a project manager and they set the price tag at $80 an hour, $100 an hour, $150 an hour, $200 an hour, whatever. That is the de facto price of that labor. So if the government sets a job guarantee at the federal level and they say, we're going to pay a living wage at $25 an hour, they have set, they have established the price level for labor. They have established the price level in general. The government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. It is also the price setter. Okay. Now, they've got this unique relationship where they've carved out fiscal policy, which is spending money, and then they've got monetary policy, which is what the Federal Reserve does, which is about interest rates. You notice that the federal government, when they should say federal government over here, when the federal government tries to tax, when it tries to do various things, when it tries to regulate, when it does these various things, it has a cascading impact on the entire economy. But if you're in the state of Florida or in, you're in the state of Maryland or something like that, now all of a sudden you're at the next level of that process. So that money was spent once. Whoever gets that money, the first spend, will take that. They will take off some profit for the, the business, for the larger costs of the organization, and then they will pay whatever payments they have to make as well. So it's like it started up here. This is the whole, the price right out of the government chute 
and then they skim off some and then the rest goes. I jokingly talk about this like a, a drug dealer, you know, gets pure cocaine. They break it up. They hand it out. The next guy goes ahead and use some cut. They cut it up. So it's like 60% or 80% cocaine and the rest is cut. And then the next joker on the streets cuts it even further. It's kind of the way it works with money as it goes and matriculates through. Okay. Because dollars are taxed differently as they go through the process. And dollars, when they come back to the federal government, are deleted. Because the federal government spent that money into existence. Does that make sense? Looking at you, chat, does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. If that makes sense, let's keep going. So when you understand that, these states now, they can really, really have a lot of problems because the federal government, when it writes a bill, it can also create what is called an unfunded mandate where it tells the state, you must do X, Y, Z. You must provide this. You must provide that. You must provide the other. But the federal government isn't providing them any cash to make that mandate stick. So this is a de facto tax on the state from the federal government by forcing them to come up with this money. And so they've pushed the taxing authority, if you will, to the states. And the states then in turn have to collect tax to pay for this unfunded mandate. Well, this you can see clearly jacks up living costs in that state. And so if states don't tax enough money, they can go bankrupt. They can have, and states have what we call a balanced budget requirement. It's constitutional balanced budget. I think there's one state in the entire country that doesn't, I think it's Connecticut and I could be wrong. Fact check me. If you look it up and find out, leave it in the comment section there. But if you think about what I'm saying here, states are like that dog eat dog world that we all think and know and love, but we think the federal government is like that too. We think the federal government has the same constraints that I just described at the state level, but that's not true at all. The federal government neither has dollars nor doesn't have dollars. It's the wellspring from which all dollars flow. Okay. Before the federal reserve spends any money into the treasury's account, the federal government wrote a law that created those dollars. So as those dollars make it through the economy, States have to compete for that money. If the federal government cuts off the spending, what do states do to get money in there? Well, see, they raise taxes. But what happens when people's salaries haven't gone up? Now, all of a sudden, you start dealing with bankruptcies and foreclosures and layoffs and other such things, right? So at the end of the day, what ends up backfilling the shortfall that the federal government didn't provide? And the state government can't make up in taxes. That's where we get into bank money. And as you know, 97% of the money in the economy today is made up of what many people that don't understand this hierarchy I just laid out call bank money. But in reality, what it is, is credit money. And what is credit money? Credit money is something that the bank, you go to the bank, you say, I'd like to take out a loan for $200,000. I'm buying a house. The bank checks, sees if you're credit worthy or whatever, and submits and creates a loan for you. Okay. That loan was created via this, a deposit, you know, a key keyboard. 
They did not sit there and loan out a deposit. There wasn't some deposit in the bank that they said, hey, raid that bank account over there. We're going to loan that deposit. Banks don't lend reserves and they don't lend deposits. That's not how the banking system works. It's all keystrokes. Okay. So now $200,000 was instantly paid from that institution via keystrokes to whoever it is that owned that house, 200,000 was, that was transacted, given to them minus fees and all the other bullshit. That money was spent to the person that owned the house or the, the home builder or whoever it was that owned the house that sold it. And now you purchased it. Now you, the individual have a bank loan, a debt that you have to pay monthly on. Okay. Thing is, is that when a bank creates or a lending institution creates credit, it sets up a reserve. It has a reserve on one side of the ledger, and then it has your payments on the other. The bank only keeps the interest that you pay on that loan. The rest of it zeroes out and goes away. This is the difference between a bank credit loan and when the federal government spends that money into existence. There is no payback period when that happens. Okay. So when the government issues a tax of any variety, you know, we have huge amount of money in the economy as opposed to the amount of taxation that's coming out. So we know that taxes don't fundamentally pay for spending, right? We know this inherently. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to see. Okay. But when you pay back that loan and your principal decreases, when it gets to zero, it zeroes out and it's done. The, the new money is gone. The interest money was received by the bank and that's how they pay their bills, okay? A lot of them jack up that rate. It's very predatory. It's usury. It's all kinds of things. And we can talk about that in another uh, discussion. But I want you to understand that that's literally how it works. The federal government doesn't go in there and say, hey, man, somebody downgraded our credit worthiness. Now, you know, we're going to have to borrow money at some rate. No, it doesn't work that way at all. So with that in mind, there are different schools of thought out there. And I'm only saying this because I see a comment in the thread. And I want to answer this real quick, but I don't want to stay here long. It says, what is AM?" AI crowd. So AMI is the American Monetary Institute. And the AMI crowd is the Rothschilds peddler, the belief that the federal the, the only thing federal about the Federal Reserve is, you know, it's as about as federal as blah blah blah. You know, it, it, they're big on this thing that it's private, it's this, that, and the other, and that they're stealing our money and that they're blah blah. Listen, the way that the Federal Reserve Act was written. It was written to provide them with a 6%, basically 6% payment. They could raise that amount. They could drop it to zero, okay? But what happens is this. The Federal Reserve does all of its interest rate stuff. It does investments. It buys old uh, debt. It brings it, you know, changes its form from short-term securities to long-term securities. You know, it does a lot of these different things, changing the form of debt doesn't create new money out of thin air in the sense for itself, but it literally is able to change the form and shape of debt. Okay. So with that in mind, if you understand that, okay, AMI crowd says that that's private, that they are ripping off the government. They're stealing our hard-earned tax dollars. That's debt. The national debt is going to kill us. 
they're just as bad as the right wing when it comes to not understanding the banking system. Okay. So ultimately they don't recognize that the federal reserve only creates money when the federal government writes a bill and says, make, make it so make it rain. Okay. Well, the interest paid on that money is the operating interest that the federal reserve makes. All profits are returned to the treasury at the end of the year. Someday, just for the hell of it, go out there on Google search federal reserve pays treasury and look at it. You're going to see the Federal Reserve gives all that money back to the Treasury and it goes into its Treasury's general account, the TGA. All right. So I just want to be clear AMI believes all kinds of hokey things. It's got some good ideas that are similar to MMT, but they get the whole money story wrong. And because they get the money story wrong, a lot of people don't understand it. They hear the crap from them and it sounds better because it's more like a James Bond novel and people get all you know, titillated by that kind of conspiracy shit. Unfortunately, it's useless. It's fake. It's not real. And you move on. All right. So moving past that. Once you get into this concept of states not being currency you know, issuers, states being currency users, federal government being the currency issuer, states, currency users. Then we've got local and municipalities since step down, but it's the same thing. The only difference is size and scope and, and legal uh, jurisdiction, if you will. That's the difference between the state and the local, right? The state, you see the hierarchy, boom. And then down here below that is we the people, right? We the people. You go, you work, you get a paycheck, you pay taxes, your taxes are not funding your federal government. Your taxes are funding your local and state government, though. They are funding them. So when you think about this whole process here, when you hear that the federal government is broke, what should that tell you? It should let you know that somebody is not telling you the truth. How is it possible for the federal government to be broke? The very federal government that creates the money out of thin air, right? Now, one of the favorite stories I get to hear from some of those folks is what happens when people lose faith in the dollar? Well, you have to pay your taxes in United States dollars and U.S. dollars, period. So if you don't pay your taxes in U.S. dollars, there's going to be a real problem. Do you think it matters whether you have faith in the dollar, whether or not you'll be chased down because you didn't pay your taxes? So it doesn't really matter about losing faith in the dollar at all. That's just such a silly, silly right-wing, crazy talking point, okay? But it's really important to understand this, though. If you're crafting federal policy and you know that the federal government creates the currency, why would you dream a little dream? Why would you dream a tiny little dream? Why would you talk about affordability? How are we going to pay for it? Why would that be a part of your thinking there? It shouldn't be. The real question at that level is, do we have the real resources available for purchase? Okay. That's up here at the federal government. Down at the state level, now we say, do we have the finances? Do we have enough money coming in to be able to afford this? That's the first thing. And then the second thing we ask is, hey, you know, are the real resources even available for it? So we got to know, do we have the money? Where are we going to find the money? How are we going to get the money? 
And then we got to figure out, do we have the real resources? So if you think about it in order of magnitude, the federal government's ability to negotiate is unparalleled. The federal government can negotiate with any business or industry and say, this is what I'm willing to pay you for that. If you don't take this amount of money for this price, you will not get the business. So people line up and they get the price that the government's willing to pay. That's the deal. The federal government could do that. And it does do that every day. The difference here is the federal government doesn't like to regulate business because of neoliberalism. Okay. So businesses can raise and drop their prices, do whatever they want. They can be predatory. They can gouge. They can do all kinds of unscrupulous behavior. There's things like elite control fraud that need to be addressed, but we're not going to talk about that today. That's for the new untouchables and the con and Bill Black and others to talk about in a different uh, framework. But for this framework, we need to understand, okay, the hierarchy, federal government, Congress, Article 1, Section 8, power of the purse. Next level, states. States are not currency issuers, they're currency users. They need to, they depend on the federal government to spend money into existence to keep the economy going. The federal government stops spending, state coffers dry up. It makes everyone go to private debt. Everyone, in order to make their bills and to take care of things, have to go. And people start getting laid off when the federal government stops spending. There is no money in the economy if the federal government doesn't spend. The sum total of the national debt is every dollar in the economy that has not yet been taxed back. The national deficit is nothing more than the difference between the amount of money spent by the federal government and the amount taxed back in a single fiscal year, in a fiscal calendar year. That's the def deficit. Is it scary? No. Does it have teeth? Can it do anything? No. If you pay down the debt, what have you done? You've done nothing. Because let's talk about the national debt in this framework of the hierarchy that we've laid out. When the United States government buys and sells, or when people in the United States buy and sell goods internationally, okay, there's always different accounts at each country where they have reserves built up based on foreign purchases, okay? When the United States government does business with China and China receives U.S. dollars, they're sitting there holding U.S. dollars in their hand. They're going, I don't know, what, 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 do I, what do I do with these dollars? We don't use them back in China. I might use them to get gasoline because petroleum products are priced in dollars. Okay, so how much do we need of that? Okay, we'll keep that much. But the rest of the money, what do they do with it? Just sits there, right? or they can take it to the foreign exchange market and they can get a currency they want to save in to facilitate transactions in whatever country they're doing more business in at the time. But ultimately, this isn't about them holding money and saying, yeah, I need that money. I need U.S. dollars. They're saying, how much business do I do with the United States? How much U.S. dollars do I need to facilitate those transactions? And then they'll keep that there. And the extra, they'll say, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to buy a bond because I can earn 2% interest on it. And 2% at a trillion dollars, that's a lot of money, right? So they would be foolish not to go ahead and buy a treasury. But they're not, U.S. isn't borrowing money from China. Not at all. 
China has decided to purchase a treasury bond with its holdings, its U.S. dollars. There was no U.S. dollars printed for that. There's nothing. And the only thing the United States government is on the hook for is the 2% interest that they promised for letting them save in this savings account called a treasury bond. So if you eliminate the national debt, you eliminate all the money in the money supply. You eliminate the money from the economy. The only way to get rid of money is to tax it out by taxing that money out. That is called austerity. Okay, when you start, stop spending, start taxing, and you start making the conditions, the living conditions of the people harder. By reducing spending and raising taxes, you create austerity. The United States government is currently instituting massive austerity through interest rate hikes, reduction in spending. And see, let me tell you, somebody's going to say, well, what about the student debt? Well, no money was spent. None. The institutions that provided the service, they've already been paid. They already received payment for books. They already received payment for classes. The only thing there is the government holding an IOU in their hands saying, hey, somebody owes us money. The government can say, hey, we're going to wipe it out. No problem. No money created, just no money having to be spent back to the government. And the government doesn't need money. When the government receives money back as a tax, it deletes it. So if that's the case, if that's the case, then what? Right? Then what? So let's let's sit here. Uh, anyway, um, I was going to answer something that was in the uh, in the uh, chat, but I'm going to skip that for now. In any event, um, I want you to understand that. When we look at states also, another major thing, you'll see this from time to time. It's happening all the time, but you'll see it now that you hear it. You'll, you'll, you'll really, really be able to see it in action. Because states are cash-strapped in their currency users, states compete with each other. Now, we talk about competition being good, and in some ways, there is good in competition. You want to end monopoly power in a, in a, a market that has one actor, you've got monopoly powers. That's not good. That's not good for anyone, okay? So we had trust busting. We used to have anti-monopoly behavior that was just eradicated, okay? Those days have been gone for a long time. There's been huge amounts of market consolidation. So monopoly power is a very real thing, okay? But states will compete with each other, okay? for those companies to come build their headquarters in their backyard. Why is that? Because states need tax revenue and they need employees' incomes to be taxed or they need that transactional revenue to get tax dollars, to be able to have that. And so they go ahead and they provide sweetheart deals for these companies to come into their backyard. And what do they do? To compete with the other states, they cut the bottom out of the tax base. They give crazy incentives. Well, the whole purpose of bringing them down there to begin with was to get additional tax revenue. But now the race to the bottom starts in full. So while the states are competing with each other, poaching business A from here and bringing it there and leaving behind rust belts of people that are unemployed, et cetera, this race to the bottom is devastating. Because these states all have a requirement to have a balanced budget. 
And that means if the economy is bad and they can't bring in more tax revenue because people are laid off, then there's going to be major austerity now instituted at the state level and the local level. Schools will be run down. Public services will be diminished. Everything will be cut. Pensions will be slashed. Okay. And this monetary abuse creates so much of the problems we see in the United States. Now, I'm going to say something that will sound a little bit conspiratorial. If you think that little old Steve Grumbine knows something here that they don't know, you're wrong. They know this stuff. This is an intentional business model. If you look, Texas would lure businesses down there. Kansas would lure businesses down there. Businesses fled Buffalo. Businesses fled Pittsburgh. Businesses fled Detroit, Michigan. Businesses fled the entire Rust Belt, leaving behind people that were currency users themselves that had no ability to pay any meaningful tax. And so what kind of social services do you think they have? Because remember, the local and the states are dependent on tax revenue to function and to provide public works and public services, et cetera. But because of the race to the bottom, they are now left destitute. They're left destitute. This competition right here used to be offset with some revenue sharing back in the 70s that was ended. There are no block grants to the states. When states go belly up, people are wagging their finger. When those CAFR reports that I talked about at the beginning of the thing come out and you realize that they have no rainy day fund, you realize that their pensions aren't funded, you realize that their schools are screwed up. And so what do the states do? States like Pennsylvania will go out and they'll say, hey, we're open for business fracking companies. Come on out here. We got mountains. Go frack them. So now all of a sudden, this race to the bottom creates very, very, very negative externalities. Very, very negative externalities that cause climate crisis, that exacerbate wealth inequality, that exacerbate poverty that exacerbate inequality as a whole with racial uh, discrimination, you name it. And then what happens? If you look at your police department, how do you think the police fund themselves? Well, they get some federal funding, but if the state's coffers are drying up, what happens to the police? The police begin to get you with fines, fees, and penalties. That's how they keep afloat. It's not just to protect the society from the ne'er-do-goods. No. It's about making money because the federal government choked them. And so now the more the federal government chokes them, the more diligent they are at extracting wealth from their poorest citizens. Because let's be fair, who do the police go after? They go after the rich? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, they go after the poor. They go after the little guy the guy who's not capable of hiring a lawyer that gets a public defender that sells him out for 10 years for something they had no control over. Okay. This, this is very important stuff because when you're looking at the problems we have in this country, and you realize that most people don't realize that the federal government creates money. When they don't realize the difference between the states 
and the federal government. They say really stupid things. They try and create public policies based on states funding them. But you just heard everything I just said, didn't you, about the federal funding versus the state funding. This is why understanding monetary operations and understanding federal financing and understanding the hierarchy of money isn't just some fluffy thing nerds do. This is important for everyone to understand because you will be led by the nose by all kinds of lies and insanity, all kinds of Bitcoin crap that they'll tell you fake lies about. I mean, not fake lies, like lies, right? On and on and on. So the other thing is this, and this is really, really important. And I debated about whether I was going to talk about this or not, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, because it came up earlier today. And our guy, Wesley, who's in the crowd, thank you very much for being a fellow traveler, sir. Um, We were out there talking about free floating fiat currencies. And so there's two different types of currencies more. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways things can be done. I'm not going to get into them all, but I'm going to talk to you about two specific flavors to fix your 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 uh, currency to a peg, to a commodity, or to another unit of account, aka the dollar or whatever. That's called a fixed regime, or a free floating regime, meaning that there is no base; it floats, its value goes up and down. It's not a big deal. Boom, boom, boom. So we have the gold bugs that fit into the fixed rate exchange, and we see. Places like Argentina and Venezuela and stuff like that that have pegged their currency to the U.S. dollar be completely manipulated by the U.S. dollar. We've seen other countries that fix their uh, currency to another commodity and based on folks like the Saudi Arabian government playing games with the quantity and supply of petroleum products and the price of that, they can literally drop the bottom out of the price of that and they can literally bankrupt a country like Venezuela instantly. Okay. So this is the problem with having an external constraint, debt denominated in a foreign currency, debt denominated in some commodity based on a peg. This thing right here allows you to be completely and utterly cooed, if you will, a financial coup by allowing you to be manipulated by external constraints. We don't have that with a fiscal budget and a fiscal uh approach to things based on a sovereign free-floating fiat currency. The word fiat, I don't know why it bothers people, but let me just say this. The word fiat simply means by decree. In other words, there was kings back in the day, okay? Well, in this case, it's the federal government granting by decree, okay? Congress by decree. This money is put into existence by decree, okay? It's not a solid form. It can't be manipulated like gold and silver and all that other crap. It's free floating. It has the most policy space available to it. Okay. Because there is no peg to it. It is completely a creature of law, a unit of measure, like an inch or a pound. And in the end, the U S dollar in this case is what we call a tax credit because it's just waiting to do its job and the economy comes back in as the tax, like I said in the beginning, and it's done away with. Money is not forever. Money is not permanent. So when you look at these countries, you have to ask yourself a couple questions. Number one, are they a fixed regime? Are they 
pegged to another currency? Are they pegged to a commodity? If they are, they're going to have a lot of problems, even though people wax poetically about this stuff. Whenever you have a peg, you're always subject to manipulation. You're always subject to external attacks. You are not protected like you are with a free-floating fiat currency. The power of fiat was on display in World War II. The power of fiat was on display, ironically, during the pandemic. The power of fiat is shown every time Biden puts another 50, 100 billion over to the Ukraine uh, people. And it's also on display every time we give money to Israel and every other thing. Every program you have, the power of fiat is there. They put the tax tied to the program to make you believe that your tax is paid for that program, but your tax didn't have anything to do with paying for that program. Okay. Taxation and spending need to be completely decoupled. They are not dependent on one another in any way, shape, or form. Do you understand that? They are not in any way, shape, or form related. So, when I think about the United States living on a free-floating fiat regime, you look at Australia. They have a free-floating fiat regime. You look at Japan. They have a free-floating fiat regime. You look at Russia. They have a free-floating fiat regime. They are buying up gold assets. Why is that? Because they've isolated themselves, and they still got it kind of in the brain that having these gold reserves will allow them to facilitate transactions. In reality, Russia figured out one thing that most of us did not. They figured out we have the real resources. That's the only thing these people's money buy. That money is a form of power. Okay. And it really, at the end of the day, they're like, well, shit, how come we're not dead? How come we're not all dying? How come we're not just, they, they cut us off from the U.S. dollar. However, will we survive? They're like, you know what? We've got all the petroleum in the world here. We've got access to tons of grain. The only thing that Russia doesn't have at its disposal is high-tech products, which all they got to do is go to their neighbor, China, who gives them the semiconductors and the other, uh, you know, switchboards and other things that they need for high-tech equipment. It had nothing to do with the money. The money's irrelevant. You see? This is why it's so important to understand. And once you understand that, I, you know, part of me wants to do a show and maybe I'll do this. I'm thinking really hard about this. What if money were no object? What if the thing we were talking about with money wasn't really a thing? What if we didn't have to talk about money? What if we just knew that the money would be spent? For example, what if you and I, instead of me going to get a CT scan for a growth in my neck last night, and before I got served, they had to tell me, hey, Mr. Grumbine, we looked here at your insurance, and we're required, you've got a sign here to let us know that you hear us, you are going to have to pay $700 out of pocket for this diagnostic for something that turned out to be nothing, by the way, but I get to pay $700, and it's after, after my affordable health insurance paid whatever part they paid, right? See, the federal government could fix that very easily. Federal government could put price caps on that stuff. It could nationalize the healthcare industry, take away the profit motive, direct pay the services to the government people and make us not have to make a single payment. Is it free? 
We pay taxes as a whole to keep the economy going, but not for the specific program. Why not? Why wouldn't we? Why is that not okay? Why do we cringe at that? That's not communism. That's not socialism. That's public purpose spending. But we could do that easily. But we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Why don't we have these great conversations? Because you've got too many chuckleheads out there talking these nonsense about the creature from Jekyll Isle, the private Federal Reserve, and all these other things that distract. And they take good people out of the sweet spot to learning so they can be effective. Now, here's the problem. And this is the last final bit that I'm going to say on this. There is a power dynamic. I don't think any of us fully grasp how much bullshit is put in front of us so that we stay distracted. The most poignant video I have literally ever seen. I'm going to see. I might have it here. And if I have it here, I'm going to show it for y'all. Oh, yes, I have it. So I'm going to show you this real quickly. And you've seen this, but I want you to understand. This is Cypher eating a piece of steak from the Matrix. Here we go. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? <sighs> Ignorance is bliss. That right there, my friends, is what they throw out at us. We have all these fake worlds in front of us, layers upon layers upon layers of, of misdirection and fake news that are thrown at us that we have to dodge and move around to avoid. And we don't know what's real, what's not. And so we can't unite because the idea of information being, yeah, this is just the facts. It's almost impossible to get people to acknowledge the facts. It's almost impossible to get people out of things. It's like they're sure that they're correct. They certain they understand. The Rothschilds, of course, did it. But when you try and break it down for them, they don't understand. So all these barriers these money silencers, these things that keep us alienated from reality, that keep us scratching an itch we can't stop, we can't find, right? All these layers of lies, the electoral process. If Let me just say this. If, 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 if things were real, if, if we really had people understanding what's going on and Congress and the president and our government actually was set up to not protect capital, but to actually serve and meet our needs. Will we be fighting about Medicare for all right now? We'd already have it, right? Will we be fighting about free college? Hell no, we'd already have it. Who wouldn't vote for that, right? We would, all sorts of stuff would happen. But alas, people have been conditioned to believe that when the federal government spends, that it's socialism. That's not true. People have been led to believe that the nation is broke and it's in debt to China. That's not true. People have been led to believe that the nation itself, government can't do anything right. Well, when you starve the beast, when you don't actually fund the programs, government will fail you every time. 
It's a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the junk. It's intentional. But it's another fake thing. And so what happens? You see that when you go to the unemployment office, you realize every chair in there has got tape on it. It's gray. It's shitty. You feel like you want to slit your wrist sitting in the room. And they make sure you wait for hours around people that smell bad and have zits and whatever else. They want it to feel as shitty as possible. You're unemployed. They want you to feel that. Does it have to be that way? Fuck no. That unemployment office could be an employment office for a job guarantee. The walls could be painted beautifully. It could be a gorgeous, welcoming, safe place. But instead, they intentionally make it like gulag. Okay? These are intentional. They are intended to produce a feeling. The clock being twisted and having a broken minute hand or whatever is intentional. It's not because they can't do the things better. It's because if they do, it breaks the veneer. The government's broke. Can't do anything. And why do they want that? They want that because they want to privatize everything. They want to get rid of the role of government. They want to create a private currency in Bitcoin. They want to create these things. They want to dismantle the social safety nets. They want to destroy that stuff. So ultimately, ultimately, when you understand this hierarchy of money that I just laid out, federal government currency issuer, state and local governments, currency users have to invest, have to tax personal finance. We either have the money coming in from our paycheck or we take out bank loans. Okay. That's the fire. That's the deal. That's the, that's the, that's the playing field. And then when you look at rest of the world, if we want to buy imports, then yeah, we got to pay whatever price the import or the exporter is, is charging, right? If the U S dollar falls in value or whatever, then your import price might go up. And then the cost of local products that are uh, domestically uh, produced will take their place. Product replacement, get over it, okay? It, 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 any government is the price setter. It's not like this free-floating thing creates it. The bottom line is that when a government is absolutely wedded to the idea that business should reign supreme and that government should be out of it, that laissez-faire, neoliberal, Reich-wing approach to finance is what you're dealing with. It does not have to be that way, though. It does not have to be that way. In fact, everything I just described could be transitioned into a socialist utopia, could be transitioned into a state-based communist. It could be anything because we already know what it looks like as a fascist state. We're in it, right? We're in it. So please do me a favor. If you find value in the stuff that I produce here at Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action, if you think I'm doing a decent job, if you think I'm providing you with information that has revealed anything to you that has helped you understand the world better, I'm asking you, please become a donor at our Patreon account, Patreon forward slash Real Progressives. Please join our website, sign up. Okay, be, be, become part of the fabric. Volunteer if you can. Help us get the word out. Help share our videos. Like, follow, and subscribe. If you believe that I've done a good job, if you believe the level of effort that I put into giving you these podcasts and videos is worth something, please become a donor. A dollar is not too much or too little. We can use whatever you can give us. I'm serious. I've been doing this for 10 years almost, folks. I really need your support. 
We, as an organization, we're a 501c3 and a 501c4, all of which require a lot of work that you don't even see, and all of which are done by volunteers who someday I'd like to be able to pay something to or help out, but I can't if we don't have the donations coming in. We're working really hard. We never take a day off, ever, folks, ever. When I was in the hospital with COVID, I was still sitting there on my phone working out the stuff we needed for a macro and cheese podcast. When my father was dying and in hospice, I was holding his hand in one hand. I had my phone in the other working real progressives. If you think that I've been dedicated to the cause, if you think that I've been working on your behalf and trying to educate as many people as I could, if you think that there's value in that, please consider becoming a monthly donor. Okay. And with that, Tomorrow, be on the lookout. Jakob Feinig will be joining us for Macro and Cheese. That'll be released at 8 a.m. And hopefully I'll have a grumble set up on status quo for Sunday. But in the meantime, I am Steve Grumbine. I happen to be the Rogue Scholar. And if I can find my outbound uh, little elbow dropper, I will go ahead and do it. And I think I found it right now. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts, please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the Real Progress in Action YouTube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org. 